Ладно, давайте честно, сбросили бы ядерную бомбу на США. Почему? Welcome to Guys Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Uh, John, you're with me today. How are you doing? Our, our resident doctor, uh, physicist. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I'm okay. Do, I'm doing good. You, you got all Life the, is good. You got all the physics takes on debates. Uh-huh. It's an important thing to know. Right. So if they got any, like, physics... <laughs> if we get metaphysical, I'm all there. <laughs> that's what they do teach in the physics class the metaphysics <laughs> yeah they're like okay guys we're, we're doing atoms right now but let's talk some metaphysics uh-huh <laughs> so uh hello bad drivers of the lower 48 uh he's he's here all all the bad drivers of the lower 48 but all uh, of them <laughs> all of them are here yeah there might be there, there might be like three i don't know but Here's the thing. There was a recent debate. Zachary Enyart, which is Bob Enyart's, one of his kids, one of his many kids. And uh, I, I've met him several times, Zachary Enyart. I, I don't remember growing up with him. And so, like, we did live in Denver. We did go to Bob Enyart's house sometimes. All I remember is his kids were never available to play. And then we'd just go jump on his trampoline for, like, 30 minutes to an hour well, my dad talked to Bob Enyart ever. I don't yeah. know if you have any of those memories. It's like, they're just always I, gone. <laughs> I thought that was Bob Hill who had the trampoline. I think they both had trampoline. Uh, yeah. Uh, Bob we, didn't, Hill, we, we didn't spend much time with Bob Enyart, to be honest. Yeah. Bob Hill's trampoline was one of those in-ground trampolines, but there's like a bee's nest under it. So you'd go jump, and then all the bees <laughs> yeah. would scatter, and then you'd have to <laughs> run away at, before you're stung by all the bees. Wait for them to calm down, and then go jump again. Try not to get stung. Yeah. We, we lived on the wild side when we were young. Right. So I don't know how old Zachary is. It's it's hard to tell from his his photo here how old he is. Uh, anywhere That's between right. 20 and 16. 57. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> <laughs> somewhere like that i'm 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 guessing on the lower end of the range i'm guessing early Probably. 20s uh i think his kids were younger than us right yeah oh this this guy's not helping out he's not much older than dominic okay that puts him anywhere between 20 to Who's 65 dominic, <laughs> <laughs> dominic Enyart's bob's other kid oh okay. that's like that doesn't help <laughs> So um, this debate is interesting. It's Zachary Enyart's first debate. And I, you kind of can tell from the debate, I, I don't want to prejudice you too much, but it's he, he hasn't done any debates, self-admittedly, and maybe it would behoove him to go into one of those, just those yelling debates, just to kind of learn how to compose yourself and respond when tensions are high. That, that probably could help him out. But we're skipping all his opening stuff. And we're skipping the rebuttal rounds and we're going straight to the cross-examination because I think that's where we could get the most useful, I wouldn't say theology, I'd say like, like points of interest for how to conduct yourself in these situations. Uh, David writes, all Enyarts matter. <laughs> like, <laughs> Bad Driver says, younger than, th none of these references are helpful. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> 
<laughs> no, it doesn't help us younger than I am. No, no, no. All the bad drivers. Younger all than the bad all drivers. bad drivers. <laughs> right. And so uh, Marlon Wilson is hosting the debate. He's actually a pretty good host of debates. Uh, sometimes he likes to chime in because he's like a Calvinist or whatever, but he's he's pretty fair, actually. And so I, I, I do kind of like Marlon in, in that way. But we are going to, he says, I'm 30. So all the bad drivers are 30. So we're going to go listen to this cross-examination. Is, is open theism biblical? And we'll, we'll just pay attention to how the questions are asked, how they're followed up, uh, what kind of strategies involved from both parties. Michael Holloway, who I've dealt with on several occasions, is his uh, sparring partner tonight. Kind of like a quasi-Calvinist Arminian is the how I would describe him. And so we'll, we'll see the strategies involved ask questions if you can answer your opponent's question with a simple yes or no please do that you do not want to bog your opponent's time down with long-winded answers all right that said uh mr zachary enyart you are up first for 20 minute cross x of michael and i will start your time as soon as you begin your first question okay all right so uh do you affirm that god is timeless I do believe that God is atemporal. Yes, he's out. Okay, so th this this is an interesting opening strategy. Maybe maybe he's trying to ground the conversation. It's like, but did you not do research on your debate sparring partner to know this already? Isn't it difficult to know what they, like, don't they dodge these things all the time unless it's someone who's very prolific? Right, that's true. So it, it might be a genuine query or it might be a yeah. setup. So when I was first watching this, I, I was hoping it was a setup. I was hoping it was going to build to other questions that would uh, hit him deeply. And we could see how well this works as a setup or if it didn't. Side of time. Yet he he, he deals with the man within time. Okay. Um, so uh, in Revelation 4.8, when it describes uh, God as the Lord God Almighty, who was, which was, and is, and is to come? Uh, how do how does your theology handle God being described uh, in tenses like that, uh, with a future tense, a present tense, and a past tense? So uh, the way this question is asked is very open ended. Yep. So if you're you're in a cross examination. Your goal, if, if you're in a debate, if you're in a normal conversation with someone trying to understand their theology, yeah, it makes a lot of sense to ask open-ended questions to get them talking. But in a debate, you want to control the conversation. You don't want to ask questions which allows long rambling answers, non-answers, or doesn't, or allows them wiggle room to get away from the questions. So mm -hmm. if I was going to ask this question, I'd say, hey, does this verse say that God was in the past or something like that? Is, is that tensed in the past tense? Ask him a very specific, obvious question, which forces an answer. So then yeah. he can't go, yes. If, if he tries to obfuscate like this, like he just starts talking about whatever, then you say, no, back to the question, though. Is this tensed past tense, right? the god who was 
is was past tense and he has to say yes then he could do is 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 present tense then he, he's gonna be like he is yes and then um is to come is that future tense and then he's gonna be forced to say yes or if he doesn't if he's not forced to say yes he's in this very weird position where he's just kind of like obviously obviously like biased obviously rejects the tax he's 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 in sort of some situation he can't run away from without looking very poorly and so the very specific questions forces the specific answers and then after you get them to answer all those things then you then you ask that so this this verse says that god was in the past is currently and is in the future isn't god tensed something like that uh, I think they affirm that he's everlasting from everlasting to everlasting. Is there ever a time when he was not? No, he always is. He's from everlasting to everlasting. Okay. So uh, when it says God is to come, uh, how does that show that God is already in the future? If it says he is to is, come. Is he nervous or is he just uh, like, has he ever had this conversation with someone before? Yeah, that's that's one thing that I didn't want to prejudice you on. He's He seems very unconfident of himself. And that sort of thing comes across in debates fairly clearly. So Mike Holloway, although he talks a lot of nonsense, and, and you'll, you'll probably get this, I you, you go to the bars or something with someone, or the mall if you're a non-drinker guy, you go to the mall with someone and then you're talking to them maybe at a restaurant and they just talk up a big game, but you could like understand like everything they're talking about is just like nonsense. So you just kind of nod your head and, and play along. I don't know if you ever had those friends. Yeah. They'll be yeah. like, yeah, here's how I talk to girls. I'll be in line at Starbucks and they'll be in front of me listening to music. I'll say, Hey, what are you listening to? And if I don't know the band, I'll say, I'll tell you what, you give me your number and, and then I'll go listen to the song and I'll come back and tell you how I like that. Doesn't help. <laughs> I don't think that's going to work. friend. I, I just don't. Yeah. Yeah. I, but, but you just say, Oh yeah, that's an interesting strategy. I'm sure that worked once. I you don't know. It's, uh, so Michael Holloway seems like a big talker and the people who are talkers like that, they could just like go on very confidently about things that are like absolute nonsense. <laughs> Well, so far, I haven't seen anything like like he's given this the standard answers, and he and he said his answer quickly. So, right, yeah. We, so far, so far, it's been good on his part. Yeah, the standard pad answers so far. Like, uh, if, if, mm -hmm. well, well, the answer to the question is: remember, the message is about God, but it's towards man. And remember, God communicates with man in ways man can understand. We are temporal beings. We operate in time. Therefore, See? when the message is communicated to us, yeah. it's not that God will be something different in the future than he is in the present or that he was in the past because God is and always has been. He is, he was, he is to come. So from our perspective, God will be God in past, present, and future. This in no way. This in no way boxes God in to temporal categories such as time. He exists outside of time from everlasting to everlasting. He's God. And so what do you think about that? I, I mean, again, he, he's he's coming up quick with that's what Calvin said, you know. 
Right. So it's an interesting strategy for Enyart to make this his opening question. So if it is going to be his opening question, he has to make some sort of point and he has to force the point. Yeah, it seems like he could get a gotcha right there, to be honest, because the lisping argument it is is easy to knock down with just, how come you can understand this, but God has to speak baby talk to everyone else. Yeah, right? so it's like, uh, so the author, when he wrote this, this is not actually what he meant. It's not what he meant. It's not what yeah. he understood. It's not what you understood, but he's just, just saying it for my sake then. Right. That's so, what you're saying. Yeah. The original audience of this text, when they read this, were they to understand that God is timeless or tense or or neither? Like, well, yeah. <laughs> and then it's like, 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 what is he trying to communicate if they, if they're under, if the intention is they can't understand it, so I'm going to tell them something that's false. What are you communicating then? Yeah. But, but yeah, yeah, yeah. So there, there's plenty of ways now that he's opened up that argument to go after him. We'll see how Enyard does it, but because it's basically an admission already that the text does not mean what it says. It's a yes. basic denial of the text. So let's hear how Enyard follows up. Okay. Um, okay. So when God rested on the seventh day of creation. How can God rest if... Uh, no follow-up. I mean, he just he... moved on to another thing. Yes. And so okay. that's a mistake. Uh, and I, it's a repeated mistake that you see in the cross-examination is he doesn't go for kill shots. So I don't know whether it's uh, a debate experience as uh, we have in the comments that he doesn't have much debate experience. And he admits he doesn't have that much debate experience. But it also could be an information deficit. Like, how often has he de dealt with people of this type, responding right. to them with these types of questions and answers? I, I don't think that he has much experience just dealing with the informational realm that we're getting into. It, it seems to me that he hasn't even had conversations with people about this. Like, it's interesting to do a public debate online about something as well known as this without having talked to other people about it. Right. I, I'm getting the impression he's never even just sat down with someone and talked to them privately. And it could be the case. Uh, you're homeschooled. You might grow up in a bubble. You go to your dad's <laughs> church and everyone already agrees with you. Uh, that wasn't my experience growing up. Everyone hated me. It's like they surrounded uh -huh. me. I said, you you learned to be a debater. Yeah, yeah I, <laughs> that I, was your education. I'm surrounded <laughs> yet by people yelling at me about open theism. Everyone trying to talk at once, and me in the center, just trying to respond to everything as it. <laughs> maybe that. Maybe that is that's our experiential difference. Uh, he is outside of time. Uh, how how can he rest on the seventh day? Oh yeah. So, so remember creation, it, the creative account is describing God's creation as it relates to humanity. Right. And he established during creation, uh, that can you still hear me? Yeah, I can still hear. Oh, okay. He established during creation that the evening and the morning was the first day, the evening and the morning was the second day and so on and so on. But let me point something to, out to you that you may not have ever noticed when the Bible says, and on the seventh day, he rested. Notice there was no evening and the morning was the seventh day. You want to know why? Because the rest that God created was an eternal rest that Adam would have 
enjoyed eternally had he not failed, right? Had he not failed. Now we labor to be get into that rest. Okay, are you seeing what I'm telling you? Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's not he's not talking theology anymore. He's just talking about the state of mankind. It's like, like, uh, so here, like, like he's essentially run off topic, and uh, I guess. I think it's the job of the cross-examiner to put them back on topic if they start moving off. Right. The argument seems to be something like, um, did God rest on the seventh day? Well, the seventh day is this, it, it's supposed to be an eternal day of rest for man. There's no, there's no evening and morning. The seventh. Like, 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 I, I, they... I don't, I don't know who Michael Holloway is. If he's sees himself as an educator, first and foremost, then he just thinks these questions are opportunities to teach. And and this is this is what your Sunday school teacher would do. Yeah. So what Enyard should should be doing, and to to stop all of this, it's it's all nonsense. You're not getting usable information. You're not having a meaningful uh, interaction. So his second question should be: He reads the text. He says Genesis two two, and on the seventh day, God ended his work which he had done, and he rested on the seventh day from all his work, which he had done. Just ask. In the text, does it say God rested on the seventh day? Yeah. Does it? And then, then it's a yes or no. It's like, he could he could go start going off on his one thing. It's like, well, okay, you, you can right, have all those opinions. Right, what right, is the right, text? If everything he's saying, like, it, do, it doesn't deal with the fact that there were six days that he worked on, right? That he was part of. Like, him resting and him doing things on saying things on certain days it's all the same thing like it it's kind of irrelevant whether or not this is some eternal rest or anything else yeah it says on the seventh day god ended his work you could say what was the original audience supposed to understand that well, happened between the sixth and seventh day and he says anything other than god ended his work um then uh then it's just pretty obvious you don't let them have open-ended conversations about nonsense about the text i don't think zachary enyart had an open bible in front of him he doesn't seem to be looking up these texts or reading yeah. these texts and it, if if the debates about the bible is open theism biblical uh hopefully you frame the debate i think zachary enyart failed to frame the debate properly as well by saying this debate's about the Bible, it's not about what I believe, it's not about what Michael believes, something like that. And then talking about what you should expect to see from people who actually believe the Bible, and then That's following through on that. You're, no, he did not he did not before, frame the debate. Before cross-examination, he didn't do that. Right. So the debate's not framed in a way which this could be a reinforcing point. You could say, Yeah, you could talk about all those stuff. That's just not in the text. This is a debate about the Bible. Does the Bible say God rested? Yes or no. And then Michael Holloway, if, if you use that strategy, it just diffused his entire talking point that was all over the place, nonsense. It told the audience that he's ignoring the Bible. And it told the audience that Zachary Enyart cares about the Bible. And it refocuses them to the text. And then he gets to ask the same question over and humiliate Michael. It, that that would probably be the better strategy with this type of if if he's going along these lines of questioning about tense mm -hmm. and, and God resting on the seventh day. So that doesn't seem to happen. I might I might if Zachary, if you're watching this, I don't mean to be mean. I just am mean. <laughs> <laughs>
through our faith in Jesus Christ. And now we rest in the eternal God. But it, it's not that God is saying, man, it's, it's Saturday. I better take a nap. No, no. He rested from his labors. In other words, all of his works were complete. In no way is that verse trying to communicate that God in any way is locked in to the parameters of the clock. <laughs> In no way does in no way should any reader of that verse walk away thinking that God rested on the seventh day. That yeah. in six days He created the, the world. The, the clock, the day is the clock. In no way should you think He's somehow working within that clock. <laughs> he's outside of the clock. And we're just saying that He rested. I, I I didn't mean to say seventh day. I, I just meant He rested. <laughs> Oh, and he he doesn't take. Oh, let's let's watch. Do you, Zachary? Do you take him to do you take him to task? Okay, but was he resting for the six days that he was creating? Was God resting yeah. for for the six? Yeah, that's good. That's, that's good. a fair yeah. days that he created. No, no, he was God was not resting, and that he was creating, right? But his works were finished on the seventh day. Okay, so. Uh, if if God is creating, is not resting for six days, and then he is resting on the seventh day, how can that be reduced to just um, uh, God is uh, talking to us in human terms? If you're, it's, you're putting words uh, in his mouth, don't do that. Yeah, so it's, it's, it's really easy. You just grab the text, pull it up, and say, this is a debate about the Bible. Does it say... Yeah. That God switched from working to resting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It's like, a very simple question, and you can see what he's doing in his head. He's predicting what his answer is going to be, and now, and he's just trying to rehash it out. Right? Yeah, he's, he's saying, "Oh, yeah," because you're going to say God is lisping. So, so I'm going to predict that. No, don't do that. Don't do that. Yeah, force him to say it. Force, force him to say it. <laughs> I'd make him say it over and over again, and then just yeah. do a gotcha. So, so you're saying yeah. that this text doesn't mean what it says. Okay, next text. <laughs> and, you, know, you, you could do. So, it sounds to me like you're saying this text doesn't mean what it says. That's what you said about the previous one. Do you think you're going to say that about the next text we go over? Maybe something like that. It, it would be really funny because then he's forced into this, emitting this pattern of denying the text one one after the other. Uh, the rest is being ap applied to God himself. It's not just saying it looks like God is resting from our perspective. The text actually says God is resting. So how does that work in timelessness? Again, when it says God rested, it is simply saying that he finished his works. He finished his works. Uh, and again, there was no evening in the morning was the seventh day. Adam could have enjoyed God's eternal rest for the eternal ages to come had he not felt fallen into sin. So uh, I'm not sure if I'm answering. You can clarify. Uh, hopefully, hopefully I'm, I'm understanding you correctly. Cool. OK, uh, so with uh, Genesis 2.19, let's move on to where God brings the animals. Let's move to Adam. on. <laughs> what is the reason oh. that the text gives for God bringing the animals? Do you think Zachary just doesn't know why we do cross-examination? It could be that he's unfamiliar with 
the goals of cross-examination, the purpose in the debate, the effect on the audience, mm -hmm. it, psychology, it, it, it could be due to all these factors. Uh, he might think that he's in a normal discussion with like a normal person for a no normal reason. Yeah. But this is a debate. It's it's not it's not a discussion. So yeah. what he's doing is self-sabotaging. You have Michael Holloway making very you're you're actually basically feeding him softballs. What about this verse? Okay, what about this verse? What about this verse? And he gets to just say whatever he likes about them. And then you move on as if yeah. they've been answered. Yeah, exactly. And so it and then Michael answers very confidently. And then Zachary, uh -huh. his his transition is okay, let's talk about this verse. As if like your entire question has already been defeated. The cross-examination yeah is psychologically working against Enyart in this case. Mm -hmm. to Adam. I'm, I'm sorry, repeat the question. I had a little computer glitch. Repeat the question one more time. So in, in Genesis 2.19, uh, where God brings uh, the animals to Adam, it says uh, he brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them. Uh, what is the reason for God bringing the animals to Adam in that verse? Because God had given Adam in Genesis 1 verse 26 dominion over all of the works. That's where you got to cut them off and say, no, what what specifically does the text say is, is there a reason in the text? You could read it to him and then it'll, it'll it's a humiliation ritual because he's uh, Michael Holloway does not want the actual answer. He doesn't want the textual answer. He wants to obfuscate. And so if they're going to do that, you humiliate them. You read the yep. verse and say, is there any clause, uh, you know, subordinate clause or anything like that in there that gives the reason why God called the animals uh, to Adam? And it, it's a humiliation ritual and it's punishment for doing this kind of question answering. So his hands over all of the animals, the fish of the sea, the birds of the air, and therefore Adam having dominion over these things was given the responsibility to name those animals that in no way precludes that God had no idea. Uh, the, uh, well, it's not my turn for question, but, but that might be one coming back. up whether or I'll not you believe that, that God works. was waiting to see what Adam would name them as if he did not know. I don't think he ever goes back for anything that he says he needs to circle back around to. So I, I don't think we're missing anything. Uh, well, okay, I, not about this topic. I'm just curious how it works the other way around and cross. Yeah. Okay. Uh, so if if God knew what Adam was going to call that the animals, why does the text say that he brought them unto Adam to see what he would call them? Okay, so the problem is Zachary's reading the paragraph. He's he's quoting the text. You need to force Michael to say it out loud. And force him to give ground. Make it painful. It's like, is, is there any paragraph or is there any sentence or is there any clause in there? Prepositional phrase, perhaps, that explains why God brought the animals to Adam. Make, make him say it. You, you can't supply it for him. Force a question that he has to answer that if he doesn't answer, it's painfully obvious to the audience what he's doing. Yeah, and, and you got to call him out if he is dodging it. Yeah, and so Enyart is not – Enyart, he, he's got a mental construct of what he needs to do in this cross-exam. His execution's lacking because 
he's he's trying to supply the things that he wants Michael Holloway to supply. So you got you got you got to treat it. You got you got to dumb it down. This is not a conversation. Mm-hmm. You got to just force very straightforward answers that you know the answer to, that they know the answer to, that you know that they don't want to answer. Well, again, again, you got to understand the tech. The text isn't saying that God wanted to know because he didn't know what Adam would name them. That is nowhere near what the text is communicating is the full scope of Adam. Okay, so now here's a question, or not a question, a comment from Petromax. He says, it's painful trying to argue with someone who keeps trying to lecture you. So uh, the humiliation ritual, making people plainly say what the text says in the cross-examination, this kills the whole lecture, lecture that the teacher-student vibe that michael wants michael wants to be like i'm the teacher you're the student if you force them through these remedial actions these humiliation rituals he doesn't get this little high ground where he's like i'm gonna school you about this you're like what does this text say then he avoids it no that's not what it says i'll read the paragraph for you again yeah Uh, just tell me just can you read uh the second clause here so something like that force him in the humiliation ritual they they don't get to be teacher at that point i mean he's basically they've adopted this situation because michael's been talking to a lot of people like this and now he's talking to zach who's coming kind of with with a lot of inconfidence like like he's really curious and doesn't know it just needs to be sat down and told right yeah yeah he does he just put out the vibe yeah Adam's dominion over everything that God created. So what we don't want to do is take a a biblical text and glean a different understanding out of it. The understanding of that text is that he would bring the animals to Adam. Why? Adam had dominion over those animals. It it wasn't that God didn't know. God sitting back saying, man, I wonder what he's going to call that. Mm -mm." (laughs) That's what the text says. (laughs) What? That he would have dominion if you if you name it, you own it. Is it's what? <laughs> well, it could it could be the idea. Um, there is an ancient Near East idea that if you know the name of something, you have power over it. And so, in the wrestling match, Jacob and Yahweh, uh, the name That's is commanded to be known so that he has power over it. Uh, but the interesting thing in the text is it specifically states that God is watching to see what adam will call him uh, so what, what's the reason he's watching it's because he doesn't already know even if it is a power even if it is something about dominion it seems to me to be curiosity what's this new new built creature this new creation yeah. going to do let's see what he does no that's no as a matter of fact as a matter of fact i, I know that you believe that god knows the present and God knows Adam's present heart condition. God knows what's in Adam's heart. So God would not even on in your. You see me over in the comments. I don't know if Zachary was seeing comments, you... <laughs> but I like press the question. What does the text actually say? Is the reason? Read yeah. the text. I'm just over here, just crying, crying <laughs> into the void. Like, I, I know. I've, I've seen a lot of people crying into the void right there. I know. It's, it's so. Um. I the the platform that the Gospel Truth uses is not Streamyard. And so you don't get unless you have a second monitor pulled up with the chat scrolling, and then you you have to follow the chat while you're following the debate. I it's it's going to be a lot harder to do, and he he's probably doesn't got the chat scrolling. 
it would probably be difficult for him anyway. Right. Considered, but, uh, but it could have been helpful. How did how did Zachary end up in the debate in the first place? Uh, his brother Dominic uh, suggested him to the gospel truth, and so he's paired up with a non-Calvinist for this debate. All right. Belief God would not have had to wait for Adam to actually pronounce a name over any animal before he would know. But again, God knows everything, and He's not waiting on Him. He's not depending upon man for anything. He's gonna okay. move on. Let's um, move on. Oh, here. So, so uh, you would affirm that God already knew what Adam would name the animals. Absolutely. Okay. Just like I affirmed that God already knew Adam was going to see him. Okay. Uh, so I guess I'll move on to. Uh, <laughs> there the, it is. The... Oh, no. Oh, yeah, no. It's, it's predictable at this point. He's going to say, oh, yeah, let's move on. Yeah, that, that, let's move on. Or my next point, that's but, those, are, those are not good transitions. No, this is what we said. Like, I think he just doesn't know what the point of cross examination is. That, possibly story uh uh would you say sure. that when it said it repented the lord that he had made man on the earth would would you say that's literal or that's not literal it's it's another big problem with this cross exam is it's a it's a debate about the bible and neither of them seem too particularly interested in actually reading the text of the bible and so it'd be a lot more effective to pull up the verse and say uh, it says it repented that god made man uh after he said he's wicked just pull up the text and read it and then ask the question the audience doesn't have the context so unless well, well do they because it's like 40 minutes into the debate right right but they already talked about it there there was an opening statement by enyart that read the verse but they, they're not going to be able to recall what the verse says and you're not refreshing in their memory the weight of the verse. You're you're just grabbing a little bit of little bit of a phrase mm -hmm. out of a verse and reading it. Yeah. Yep, that's right. And so it's it's not good for the audience. The audience doesn't know what's going on and they they can't I, and then Michael Holloway what does he have to respond to? Just open-ended anything. He doesn't have yeah. actually have to acknowledge what the text actually says because it's not read. It's not introduced into evidence at this point literal in the sense that you have to understand the literary context and again the phrase communicates god's overwhelming sorrow at the iniquities of man remember god is holy sin is a contradiction to his nature and so the response to sin is grief we can grieve the holy spirit so the response to sin again which are again also part of god's unchangeable characteristics he can never love sin God can't love sin. It's impossible. All right, another question I might ask you later. <laughs> okay. Uh, so did God actually repent in, the, in that story? Well, remember, words take on meaning in the context. Words are equivocal. So that means that depending on the usage. So in the sense, I could say yes, because repenting <laughs> has several, even in straws or even be that. You what now? Like this is a, another example to, to get him with context. Context-wise, for this whole chapter, is he killed all mankind? He yeah, built, made them all, and then he killed. Like contextually, it looks like you regretted your decision and tried to erase it. 
Yeah, what in con that, that's your follow-up question. What in context makes you think that God didn't actually change his mind here? And then of course, uh, a pat answer would be something like, Well, he didn't kill all of mankind. Right? He killed everyone <laughs> except for Noah. That's like that. So God didn't change his mind about being sorry about creating mankind, and your evidence is he didn't kill everyone. Like, like, man, what is the plan? Is this some perfect plan that I'm going to make a bunch of people and then I'm just going to kill most of them except for a few and then let it happen again? Yeah, and and then I'm going to write in the text that it repented me that I had made them. Yeah, yeah, just so that you guys feel how like like you get some sense of what you know you can relate to what even if that's not really what happened. Yeah, maybe maybe they think that the Bible just communicates in like uh, competitive emotions or something like that. Like, like it gives you it, the feeling of this text is accurate. the 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 text itself is not accurate, but the sense of the feelings that it makes you feel is the point. But it, it's like you know the whole reason they they don't want to say God didn't know it and try to erase all mankind is because they think it makes him look uh, capricious, callous, not not without foresight things like that right uh but knowing all of this is going down and doing it that way like like is is that better is that somehow like some some great and holy plan to just build all mankind to wipe them out because sin is ugly like i i don't know it doesn't sound like it's a, a better thing i don't think it makes god look better Right. It's it's actually interesting. I, I don't think Zachary Enyart is all too familiar with open theist literature. I think it, you have one of these common problems where there's a parent, like myself, and I do my darndest to transfer all my knowledge to my children, but it just doesn't work. You know, it's just, I there, there's too much knowledge in this world. And so even if I give them a thrice weekly lessons about various things, history and and politics and economics. It's just like, I can't just brain dump into them. And so I'm, I don't think Zachary is too familiar with his father's work on this. He, he seems to drop the ball on uh, Enyart Sr.'s work that Enyart has talked about with like prophecies and stuff like that later in this debate. But I just, I just don't think he's been engrossed in the literature enough to understand What's going on? One of the, one of the pieces of literature I find is very interesting about the flood is David Kleins, and he's a Hebrew scholar. Wrote a Hebrew dictionary, does the word biblical translation for Job. He wrote a paper called "The Failure of the Flood," in which he points out that there's two repentances within Genesis six. The first repentance is of making mankind, and then guess what happens later in the text? Then God finds Noah. Uh, he finds him and uh, decides not not to destroy him. And so his argument is there's two repentances. First, there's the repentance of creating all of man. Then there's a repentance of wiping all of mankind out. Why? Because Noah's found righteous in some sort of manner in the eyes of God. And so that, that, that would be a response. It'd be a technical response. It'd be an argu arguable response. But, but it's a valid one to... Like this idea that, oh, if you don't wipe out anyone, then it's not an actual repentance. Well, the text gives actually two repentances. And even if it doesn't give two repentances, wiping out everyone but one family doesn't invalidate God regretting <laughs> making mankind. Yeah, Maybe God's sense of justice, uh, that not destroying a righteous family, 
overrid yeah, his like he, desire to kill everything. He still re- repented that he made all mankind, but he's not going to kill a righteous person. Yeah, like let's say you got a kid and the kid turns out real bad. You're like, well, I wish I never had this kid. That doesn't mean you go out and strangle the kid. Yeah. Like, like choke him out in his sleep, like uh, like the new Star Wars him, like uh, Luke, I don't know. Whatever that new Star Wars movie is where they try to kill the kid who might turn out bad. Yeah. Return of the Jedi. But but yeah, yeah. Or or like you have five kids and you know your your whole family life is horrible, but you have one saving grace. You still probably wish you never had the family, even if there is that one saving grace. One of your five is is good, right? Yeah, so the thing thing about this text force out is that God is not sorry that man became wicked. God is actually repentful of his own prior actions. One of the two times in the Bible that it explicitly stated that God's regretting his own previous actions. And so force it out of the text, Genesis 6, 6, and the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and was grieved in his heart. And then 6, 7, so the Lord said, I will destroy man whom I've created from the face of the earth, both man and beast, creeping thing and birds there, for I'm sorry that I made him. What is God grieving? What is God repenting? What is God sorry for? Make them say the phrase, uh, his own actions in creating man. God is not repenting the man's current situation. God's repenting of his own actions in the process. So that's a really weird thing. If if Michael Holloway's if Michael Holloway was writing the Bible, this would never make it into the Bible. Right. <laughs> it just wouldn't. And so Enyart kind of drops the ball on just forcing the text, reading the text, and forcing Michael Holloway to confront the text. And there, there's several connotations to the word repent. Repent can mean deep grief or sorrow. Repent can mean a change of heart, a change of mind. Yes, there was sorrow in that man had gone against God's purposes. See, so, so right there, he says the sorrow was because man had gone against God's purposes. That's not what the text says. The text says the sorrow was because God's own actions and creation, which will get them every time. Force him to say that. Yeah, you you could read the text and it's man's condition that leads God to this situation. But what grieves God is his own actions. Yeah, absolutely. Okay, Uh, so let's see here. He's moving on. Let's let's move on. (laughs) Let's, Let's move on. So if, if we assume that the definition of repent is a change of mind, did God repent in that in these verses? Oh, he didn't. No. Not not no, because you and I are still here. <laughs> he oh. he doesn't know how to phrase his question. He doesn't uh, yeah. he doesn't know how to draw it out. Yeah. Okay, well, well uh, he didn't uh destroy the whole earth, but what the text says was uh, he repented that he made man. So how does uh, him choosing to save eight people on the ark prove that uh, he didn't actually regret uh, making man? So the question elements are there. Just the delivery's not the best. I I don't know if the audience is following along with the question that's asked. You said, you said because he saved eight people, somehow that means he didn't repent. Uh, 
I don't think that's valid from the text. What what makes you think that saving eight people invalidates God changing his mind about creating mankind? Yeah. Th- there's the question. So you don't you don't have to kill anyone to have repented. Yeah. Like I, again, the example you have you have a terrible family life. You could regret ever having it and and change your mind. You don't want to be part of this family anymore. That doesn't mean you're going to go out and kill them all. Killing right. them is a different kind of action than the actual repentance. But but let, let me tell you this: if you do kill them, um, then that's pretty good evidence that you actually did <laughs> <That's> regret. <true. laughs> that yeah, that's excellent evidence. That's excellent contextual evidence. <laughs> if if you're in front of a jury and you're like, I didn't actually regret having that family. There, you're on trial. You're on the stand, and uh, <laughs> they're like, uh, Did you say in this Facebook message you regret having your family? And they're like, well, I didn't actually regret having my family. Well, you did strangle them all, right? Like, oh, you got me there. But I didn't strangle all of them. <laughs> I, I, I strangled only part part of them, all but the one. And so. <laughs> because there were eight people on the ark. Remember, had he completely changed his mind about creation? It didn't say. And if so, you got to pick which verses you want to take wouldn't literally in the ones you don't. It says it had repented God that he created man. And as long as you show me eight men or eight of humanity on that boat or on the ark, then I can tell you for a surety that God did not completely change his mind. He judged oh, man for his iniquity. Yeah, that, we're adding this this little little, uh, you know, we're gonna we're gonna marginalize it, but like, actually because he can't change because no he can't change slight. at all. Any slight change is bad for him. <laughs> yeah, I don't know if Michael knows what he's doing or if he's just one of those guys who just likes to talk so and just talk for the sake. He's not a Calvinist. No, he's not a Calvinist. But I, I, I don't think Michael intellectually understands what he just said. Yeah. Uh, I just I I feel like he's one of those talky guys. You'll you'll get into a, like a booth or something. You'll talk to them at an event, and they'll just talk like nonsense and just keep going. And you'll kind of you'll kind of on the back of your mind know it's just he he's just saying things to like fill the gap, and um, probably doesn't know what he's talking about. But he preserved humanity through Noah's seed, okay. and he had already promised to do that in Genesis three fifteen. He had promised to do that in Genesis 3.15 when he said the seed of the woman would bruise the head of the serpent. So though God was grieved with man, he did not decide to completely annihilate man, though he was grieved with man. So this is another weird argument. The argument is that since in Genesis 3, there's some sort of statement about some sort of snake bruising a hill and women or men bruising the snake's head, that somehow that means Jesus and somehow that means Jesus is foretold, and so somehow that means God couldn't have ever considered destroying all mankind yeah, a few chapters yeah. later. It's this weird argument. It's like uh, your argument just re- relies on every all the assumptions you want to bring to the text. Well, yeah, I, I think probably what's happening is when people read Genesis, it's kind of confusing. If you come at Genesis completely fresh, there's a lot going on in it. Like It's actually very dense packed with information 
a lot of things happen in a short amount of time and you need someone to interpret it. And so what happens is someone gives them an interpretation for that and they're already primed to just pick up any new interpretations ever in like, the later chapters. You're like, talking snake? Oh, that doesn't make sense. Oh, that's just Satan. Okay, that's Satan. No, that's yeah, big yeah. Snake is Satan. Okay, it makes sense. Okay, okay. what's the next one? What's the next one? Okay, what something about heal and bruising? Oh, that's that's that that doesn't mean about that. That's not about human snake inner strife. That's about uh, Jesus. Ah, yes, um, that makes sense. All the Bible is about Jesus. Mm-hmm. What about this genealogy over here? What about this tubal cane thing? Or what about this <laughs> iron working? Oh, that's about Jesus too. I, I guess I don't know. Man, still continued. Okay. Okay, so uh, I'm going to move on to uh, Genesis 18:21. Um, well, at least he stuck with uh, it for a while. Uh, God is looking. Yeah, he pressed him a little bit. Um, in that Sodom and Gomorrah, and he says, "I will go down now and see whether they have done altogether according to the cry of it, which is come unto me. And if not, I will know." So. In that verse, is God saying that he will know something in the future, possibly? No. And let me, and because this verse is actually going to, going to, going to hurt you, Brother Zach, because. Make, make him say the phrase. Just say, what is the reason this verse gives that God is going down to see? Is there any clause in there? Any sentence, anything in there that tells us? Make him say it. Make Michael say it. It's a humiliation ritual. Watch what this says. I will go down and see whether they have done all together according to the outcry against it. So there's an outcry against these people based on actions they had already committed. And even in your system, God would already have known actions that are already committed. So again, read the verse again. I will go down to see whether they have done, done past tense altogether, according to the outcry against it. Uh, that Did I ever tell you my interaction with Matt Slick? I mean, you've mentioned a lot of your interactions, but you, uh, you about, did ask him a question. About right? this verse particularly. Uh-huh. I said in Genesis 22, God doesn't know past information. He's going to see down to see whether or not the reports have come to him are accurate or not. And Matt Slick just went on this huge rant. And he's like, if you turn back to Genesis 3, God is walking in the garden asking asking." <laughs> he never thought he was saying he doesn't know past information. Well, <laughs> no, no he, he's, he's too mentally incompetent to process that I just made the claim. And so his counterclaim was, in Genesis 3, obviously God knew the answers to the questions he was asking. Therefore... Because that would also involve a breach of past knowledge. Therefore, the Genesis 22, which I already stated, God didn't have past knowledge. Therefore, that was like Genesis 3. And God also also already had that knowledge. It was like insane because because he's he's pre-programmed to interact with responses. And when he doesn't get a response that he's expecting, it just, he short circuits. It's like he he can't (laughs) mentally... He can't mentally construct what was just said and incorporate it uh-huh. into a logical response. It was so funny. It's like, okay. It has come to me, and if not, I will know. So unless you want to uh, uh, amend your view to say 
he also is learning. And so this is a debate about open theism. And so if even if you, you do believe that God knows all prior propositions in the Bible, just say, yeah, if God doesn't have past knowledge, open theism is true. And so this, you yourself are claiming this is a proof text for open theism. Congratulations. Uh, something <laughs> like that. Just just cede the point. For the sake of the debate, I'll agree with you that this text says that God doesn't have past knowledge. Thank you. That's open theism. Uh, <laughs> like, we, we got the time. Can we cut there? I just won, right? Something yeah. like, you don't have to be that that cocky. But it would be funny of past events, this verse does not work for you to say that God doesn't know the future. Okay. Uh, Michael... Uh, and he's moving on. I, I don't think he is going to move on, but one thing Zachary does is he allows Michael to hallucinate positions for Enya. Yeah, yeah. He's, but they're both doing that, right? Yeah, so Michael should shut him down every time he says something like, your view demands this. You say, that's not my, my view doesn't demand that. I already defined open theism in my opening statement uh, and nothing you said there, even if I affirmed it or not, has any, affirming that would mean I'm definitely an open theist, something like that. Yeah. You don't let other people hallucinate views for you. Um. So why would God choose to use this, this kind of language? I will know if he wants us to believe that uh, he has exhaustive foreknowledge. Because God is communicating to man in ways mankind could understand. This verse isn't intended to prove his exhaustive foreknowledge. This verse is intended to prove that iniquity <laughs> will be judged and God, and you can't have from God. That, that's all the verse is intended to prove. This verse isn't proving that God has to take a trip down to any city to figure out how much crime is going on in the city of Detroit, right? You can make it painful to say, do you think the author of this text believed that God had future foreknowledge of all things? Yeah. And then, it, you know, that's, it's kind of like a it forces him into a different frame of mind because then he's not supposed to be talking for himself. He's now talking for the author. And now he's going to have to say, yes, of course the author like, both believed that God had all this knowledge and then wrote in a very contrary way. We should ask Michael if Michael has to talk down about who God is to pe to other people too. Yeah. Do we he seems to know, he seems to know and he would never use that language, but I guess he doesn't expect other people to. Do, 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 you, do you follow the pattern of using that language? Yeah, maybe Mike. Maybe everything Michael's saying is super secret, not interpretable <laughs> knowledge. Right, right. He has he has the truth, but he's he's only saying it in code so that we can understand. Except we don't really understand because he's not saying the right thing. So I don't know what we're understanding at this point. Yeah, think of uh, how insane this is. Like, like if you're studying any normal text, and someone says, "Well, the author had these secret, different views that are never articulated." And he wrote yeah. in this very specific fashion. It's like, what? What are you talking about? <laughs> well, let me watch the news to see what if there's going to be some crimes today. God doesn't have to do that. He knows it beforehand. He knows it during. He knows it after. Okay, so uh, I'll ask you about. Um, let's see. Sorry. Uh, I'll ask you about uh, 
the story of when Abraham was going to sacrifice. moving on again. It, it, yeah, it feels like every single one of his cross-examination questions was answered, answered satisfactorily, and Enyar is acknowledging that yeah. all of them are answered yeah, satisfactorily. Look, look, he's, he's sitting back in his chair satisfied, re ready to, to just give his opinions about the next one. Uh, yes, it's... So, uh, perceptually this debate is a loss for open theists yep. just just watching the interaction watching how each debater carries themselves and just just the confidence differential yep. sacrifice his son isaac uh, absolutely so so when it says um uh now i know that thou fearest god how does that not indicate a change in god's knowledge because again words have to be understood within the context uh what i say that abraham uh in matter of fact the book of james actually brings this out uh, like a humiliation thing would be like the text says now i know did god know prior <laughs> well yeah this is part of the promise he hasn't really shut down michael with his answers he can just give the same answers over and over and over again. And now we're not doing anything. We've got another six minutes of not doing anything because he's just going to go to another verse and get the same answer and go to another verse, get the same answer. Yeah. So one thing you're right there that you need to set the precedence very early that you're not going to accept a non-answer and yeah. you just got to press it until it's painful, press it until it's obvious. If you spend the whole cross X on the one question, uh, that would be pretty funny, and it would be painfully telling to the audience. Yeah, he says that, uh, and of course we have to understand this in context. We know that works don't justify, but Jane was bringing out. Yeah, we could jump to uh, the Enyart. We'll, we'll jump down to where Michael. Yeah. All right, great job. All right, Michael, you are up next for your twenty-minute cross-examination of Zachary. Thank you. Zachary, question for you. Did God know when he created the world that there would be a Zachary Inyart one day? Okay. Uh, how would you, if you were in Zachary's place, answer this question? I, he, he wouldn't know about this, probably wouldn't know many of the fine details about anything. He wouldn't be able to guess there would be a Zachary Inyart. Yeah, here's what I would do. I would say, uh, this is debate uh, not about my speculation. It's a debate about the Bible. There's nothing in the Bible that suggests that any of the authors believe that God knew thousands of years into the future that I'd exist. Uh, you, yeah. you could try to point me to the reference so we could talk about the Bible. Yeah, Something like that, because then it will paint you as the biblical one and them as the philosophical one. It's a debate about the Bible. They care about the Bible. Refocus to the Bible. That's that's your key thing every time, isn't it? It's, that that's how you conduct all your debates. Right? It's because it's because none of the authors had these this philosophy in mind. It's the yeah. winning strategy every single time. Um, they they can't respond. All they got is that the their presuppositions that they bring onto the text. Their philosophy. They don't actually have the text. And if like. Point to me the secular scholar who reads like Genesis and be like, oh, oh yeah, these guys believed in and uh, divine simplicity and ineffability and and pure actuality. No, no one reads the text and believes that because it's just 
it's just not a possibility that any of these people had any of these ideas in mind. So refocusing to the text is is the move to do. Yeah. Uh, it's just you look at the text. Like, oh, what would a normal person reading this these texts come to these crazy conclusions? And no, never. No. So God found out when your parents found out. Basically. Uh, he, he could have. Uh, and so Michael Holloway wants this emotional deficit. Like, oh, man, that would be so bad if God didn't know Zachary Enyart would ever exist. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> so he's he's arguing with emotion. Is this 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 is his whole shtick. This is this is what he's trying to sell. Calvinism makes you feel better. Open theism is mean and terrible and it makes you insecure it's like oh man like that's part of his opening like how can you trust a god who changes his mind if god ever changed his mind i would i would i would cower in fear all the time about everything yeah, yeah like god lying all the time or babe or, or telling you one thing but really meaning something else and thinking you just don't understand so he's going to tell you the opposite yeah, that that's reliable. That's solid as a rock. <laughs> he could have foreknown that it, uh, by deciding that there'd be someone named Zachary Enyart and commanding someone to. So the problem with answering like this is you're playing to their field. Uh, Michael Holloway's setting the frame, and you're playing to their frame. Reframing and reframing in a way that undermines the question is always going to be a better strategy. And the debate's set up to do that. Is open, open theism biblical? It's easy to take the high ground here saying, you know, this debate's not about your speculation. We could speculate all we want about how God knows things and what to what extent he knows the future. Just no one in the Bible thought these things that you think. The name, they're child Zachary and Yart or alternatively he could have allowed events to play out naturally without uh uh inter interfere uh without like divine intervention so that's what I'm asking so he but he did you your your answer is no he did not know that there will be a Zachary in Yart one day no not from the beginning of the world not from the beginning of the world. He yeah, so let's go through some of the answers. Uh, Judge rightly says, the answer is no, I am not a necessary being, in quotes. All right. Um, then you've just played into his emotional frame. And now he says, okay, uh, so you admit God didn't know uh, you would exist from eternity past. And then he's going to move on, and he's going to get the quote-unquote talking point, the wind, the sound bite, something like that. He He, he found out later. Okay, uh, let me ask you this. Uh, can God choose not to be holy? Um, I think you uh, you could make a pretty... What do you think? How to answer it? or, or What do you think of the question and then how to answer it? It, it's it's an interesting proposition because like he's you you know what he's doing is if you say that God could choose not to be holy, they be like, oh it, no, it'll destroy the confidence of anyone in God, right? <laughs> yes, uh, but but it, this is one of those questions that if you ask him this, it's an issue because then it's like 
well, uh, if God is all-powerful, can't he choose, you know, is that can God sin question. If God is all-powerful, then why can't he sin? Right. David writes, uh, Jesus was tempted. Yeah, and like, like legitimate people, holy people, righteous people in the Bible thought God was maybe morally deficient. Job said uh, things like, oh, yeah. this is all coming from God. God is bad for doing this to me. There's huge lament about that. Jeremiah basically says, God has raped me. He, he has he enticed me. He has done these things to me. They're, they're blaming God for moral evil. Uh, there's the Psalms, which continually blame God for shirking God's duty. So it's like, this is a debate about the Bible. So either we could deal with what the Bible authors believed, or we could go yeah. off your weird uh, insecurities, Michael Holloway. But the biblical authors didn't think that there was some sort of metaphysical property that forced God metaphysically into always being quote-unquote holy, whatever that means, and never committing any sort of sin, quote-unquote, whatever that means. I, they don't seem to think that there's a list of sins and demerits in the either that if you make some sort of violation, then you get like sin demerits that are just added to your your ethereal person, anything like that. So it is it is it is weird. Pretty good argument that he can't choose not to be holy, uh, but I I don't know if it says that in the Bible. You, you what you could do also do to diffuse this question if you don't want to answer it like that is say this is a debate about whether open theism is biblical some open theists say yes some say no and so either position's fine yeah. uh, it's not, but, irrelevant to the debate just move on but he's he's gonna press and say so, what okay. you think right yeah just say it's irrelevant to the debate what i think so project whatever you want to on me i'll take it <laughs> <laughs> just say i'll argue whatever point you want to attribute to me whichever side it doesn't matter it's irrelevant to the debate open theism being biblical is is true or false irrelevant of any answer to this question yeah. I, I think it's reasonable to say that uh uh god's nature is holy therefore he's always going to choose holy actions i think that's very reasonable. good now, I like that because you pointed to his nature and can God's nature change? I don't believe. So you'll see this in all these open is open theism, biblical debates. They get off the Bible. Then they just start into just pure speculation. Can God mm -hmm. do this? They're like, huh, let me think about it. Hmm. Can God do <laughs> Maybe Maybe the debate title should be changed. What are the philosophical ramifications of open theism or something like that? It's you're straying away from the topic. If God's uh, uh, fundamental attributes in his nature can change, no, very good. And because his nature is holy, see, he's still following he the teacher. He's like, Very good, that's the correct answer. Now, let me help you further. <laughs> I mean, it's it, like I have nothing against him. I, I I don't even know who he is, but he he seems like a nice guy. He seems like his his goal and he's he's recognizing who he's debating with, and he's just trying to help him along. It's like okay, all you have to see it's is a, this. Yeah, so, you gotta so, learn about words. Words don't work like that. Yeah. And so <laughs> it, it's it's but I'm sure if there's there's you have a big audience, right? 
the audience impression is, oh, this isn't a debate at all. This is just a teacher teaching a student something. Yeah. Yeah, that, that is the feeling. Choose not to be holy, right? Can God yeah, change his mind? Can, can God change his mind about the second coming of Christ? That's a prophecy that that Jesus Christ will return. I believe you would perhaps believe like I do that there will be a second coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. Can God change his mind about that? Uh, All right. What do you think about that? Yeah, this is his kill shot, I think, more than anything else, because it, it goes to the, the heart of what people would be afraid of. If, if you can't trust God to give a true prophecy, then how do I know about the, the Jesus returning and the resurrection and my security in heaven? Like, this is actually a pretty heavy kill shot, actually. Uh, emotionally, yeah. Emotionally, yeah. Yeah, I'm not, I'm not saying it's a. It, it's like it's going to prove his case logically according to like the reading the Bible, but but this is what you know keeps people away from open theism more than anything else. Right, and so you could do. There's various strategies. One strategy that I might do is say, yeah, worse worse than that, the crucifixion wasn't even necessary. Jesus multiple times said it was avoidable that he could pray to God and save him from the crucifixion, call down legion of angels. And then when the garden of the Gethsemane, uh, he predicated his prayer on the knowledge that God might actually answer his prayer. And so he wards against God, destroying God's own plan to fulfill Jesus's desires. And so, yeah, if the crucifixion wasn't necessary, if Jesus didn't think it was faded, chances are that the biblical authors also thought that in the same way the second coming is, is in the same respect, something like that. You, you could push it that direction, but mm -hmm. uh, uh, another strategy you could say already, if you look at all the texts within the New Testament, all these people thought it was going to be then lifetimes people couldn't go through all the cities of jerusalem before the second I, I, coming i think i think that's a big rabbit trail because you're challenging people on something that they all are sure means something else and they're not going to necessarily hear you if you say it yeah but you also might uh shock them into the realization that, <laughs> that they were is, predicting an early comeback that that this is part of the text that they have to intellectually deal with uh -huh. right and so if, if in a literal sense, this is a quote unquote failed prophecy already, it just didn't happen in the time frame that everyone, including Jesus, including Paul was expecting. They all died before it happened. They, they weren't expecting this. Yeah. Uh, yes. Uh, uh, a text you, you pointed out was Jeremiah 18, seven through 10, where God says, if he, says that he's going to give a nation a blessing and that nation turns away from us him he does not have to give that nation that yeah this is a good answer um that god has a blanket statement about how he deals with things that he says he's going to do that he yeah. adapts to circumstances and so enyar is doing good with this answer that blessing so uh the second coming is kind of a, a uh, blessing that God has promised us. But if we 
turn away from him and disobey him, I don't think he has to give us that blessing. So you're saying if everybody in the world turns away, he can change his mind. Yeah. Is that possible that everyone in the world could change their mind? I think it's possible. Yes. You think it's possible. Okay. In John chapter number 14, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. You believe in God. You believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself. Notice the criteria for him uh, coming again was the fact that he was going. If I go, I will come again. You agree that he went away to prepare a place. Is that right, Zach? I mean, that's an interesting concept. Like his argument is that he's that Jesus is talking to everyone in the future at all times. When he says this, like, what? <laughs> like, who is he? Who is he preparing a place for? Everyone at all times. There's, there are people that he's not preparing the place for. Can't it be that all those people exist at the same time and none of the people? It's a weird argument. Yeah, and so you you could all point to God's preparations for failed expectations in the Bible. So in Isaiah five, there's the parable of the wine press. He says, I built this wine press expecting good grapes, but all I got was wild grapes, sour grapes. And one of the one of the quote unquote kill shot questions for open theists, uh, why did God build the wine press in the parable? It, it because it'll deny it says that I expected good grapes, but I got wild grapes. Yeah, God's expectations have failed. And reinforcing that is the fact that he prepared the place and built the wine press. Mm -hmm. And so, yeah, sometimes God's expectations fails and uh, God has to shift course within the Bible. Yes. And Jesus says, if I go, I will come again. But you're saying that there's a chance that he may not. Uh, yeah. So uh, if, if I say uh, I'm. I'm going to the store and I'm coming right back after. So one thing he's doing here is he's like using personal examples as illustrations. Anytime you could use an illustration that comes from the Bible, it's going to be that much more powerful. Right. He could say, yeah, for example, Isaiah five, he said that uh, he planted expecting good grapes. He even built a wine press, you know, just like he's preparing rooms. Um, he expected good grapes and got wild grapes and he couldn't use the wine press. He had to destroy it all. He had to change his mind and adapt to the circumstances. Yes, sometimes God has failed expectations. It's just a fact of the text. You throw in a little phrase like that, it's just a fact of the text, then Michael will be <laughs> over here. Because <laughs> like, uh, then Michael has to try to use his cross-examination to explain that text. Uh, or he could ignore it, uh, which yeah. is also not good for him. Right. But uh, use, using those illustrations um, is, is a defeater. And it turns out that for some reason I decide to change my mind. I don't think a reasonable person would say I I lied. I think a reasonable person would just say he changed his mind. He was going to come back, but he decided not to. And, and that's okay with you. You are, are you comfortable with serving a yeah. guy who could change his mind and about what he is. said he's going to do for us? Yeah, it's just uh, what. What's happening here is Michael Holloway just wants 
to communicate in emotions like open theism bad open theism scary open theism makes us makes us weak it's like oh no oh no and so zachary Ennert's feeding into it and not refocusing the debate and so that's an entirely different debate oh, will duffy had a debate I mean, with I, you know maybe a good response to that is jesus dying on the cross was so was god changing his mind god did god justice demands we die he decided that he would find a way out because he cared for us that, that could be a response but i was going to say will duffy had an actual debate along emotional lines uh -huh. is do, does calvinism make god evil but then will <laughs> duffy he didn't stick to the debate topic and he's uh, he got involved arguing with matt slick about whether or not jesus tricked people into not believing in order to do some sort of stuff it's like just grant the point the debate's not about what that particular text means if jesus is tricking people to send them to hell that does sound evil <laughs> just grant the point and 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 have your emotional wins but yeah. this debate's not supposed to be about emotions you got to refocus you can't just let them go all over the place yes okay that's interesting all right, Isaiah chapter 55. Yeah, Telcor actually points out that he could use the example of Saul. There's a prophecy about Saul, yet God eventually repents of choosing Saul. Or is that a bad example? That is a good example. Probably a better example would be the sons of Eli. Now, the sons of Eli were wicked, and God had to kill them all. But here's the thing. God had promised Eli that Eli and his house would stand before him forever, but then this Eli thing happens, and he, he has to change this. He takes a unilateral promise, and the text is very explicit, and he changes that unilateral promise that didn't have any conditions attached, and then changes it into a conditional. That's, I think I like like the Hezekiah example best because it's it's him changing his mind. You want to you want to pick a, a time where he changed his mind for the better to say, look, look, you, there's actually advantages when God changes his mind. If something terrible is going to happen, God could change his mind and save the people of Nineveh. God changed his mind and saved them. It's because he changed his mind and saved them that that they remained. And that 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 kind of mercy is something that you want in a God. Yeah, th that is a good point. Uh, the reason I like the Eli one is because it takes something that doesn't have conditionals and changes it into something with conditionals. So then they can't, after the fact, claim that it was always conditional. No, that was the change, changing from unilateral to conditional. It wasn't even conditional in the Jonah example. Right, but this one is changed to a conditional from a unilateral. And so it's not always conditional it's here i'll just read it therefore the lord god of israel says i said indeed that your house and the house of your father would walk before me forever but now the lord says <laughs> far be it from me for those who honor me i will honor and those who despise me shall be lightly esteemed so he's saying yeah. this thing i promised before far be it from me instead i'm replacing it with this conditional thing where you guys have to be faithful in order for me to actually fulfill my end of the bargain that's because he wasn't expecting evil kids from Eli. Yeah. Like when, when the author of Samuel's writing this, why are they writing it and including it? It's not because they have some sort of 
a modern day conception of God in mind. It's because they have to explain historical events, why Eli's sons were cut out of the priesthood in a way that makes sense. And why, and how is that? How, how this family's promised this priesthood and then it gets cut off and cut off forever because God had expected to give him the priesthood forever, but then conditions changed. So God had to adapt. That's what's going on there. That's what the author is communicating. He's explaining this historical change in the priesthood and how God's part in it. Say 55 says this, um, for as the rain comes down and the snow from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth and bring forth and bud that it may give seed to the sower and bread to the eater. So shall my word be that goes forth from my mouth. It shall not return to me void but it shall accomplish what I please and it shall prosper in the thing for which I sent it. So God is saying that when I send my word out, it shall not return to me void. It will prosper. It will accomplish what I send it to accomplish. Are you saying that this verse doesn't have to be true that somewhere between God sending his word he can change its mind and that word not accomplish what he sent it to accomplish. So it's uh, it's interesting to see what he's doing. He's doing exactly what you said Zach should be doing, which is read yes. the text, emphasize the points that you're trying to emphasize, and then ask your question very directed, saying, do you mean that this isn't true? That's really what he's saying. I just read the text. Are you saying this isn't true? Yeah, like it's very powerful. He's doing the right thing. Yeah, Michael is doing the right thing. Um, let's let's hear how Zachary answers it. Then we could go to how I would answer it. Uh, you can't take words back. So uh, when when God gives us His word, uh, uh, like what, we already have the Bible. I don't think God it can. Uh, he, he could physically remove the Bible from us, but as long as we have the Bible, uh, God's word is going to be working in our hearts how they were intended to work. I, I don't think, so, uh, I, I don't think uh, the way the words work can change. So Jesus did say he was coming back. You agree with that, right? Yeah, so... <laughs> Here's here's the thing Michael Holloway is doing is he's grabbing these diverse verses from all over the place and then he's he's cobwebbing them together. It says like this verse says God's word won't come back void, and this verse says that Jesus is going to come back. So this verse is probably a commentary on this verse, and so necessarily it means this verse means my specific thing and not yours. How I would have answered if I was Zachary Enyer, it would be like, yeah, the Bible has that all the time. God says, without fail, I'll drive out the uh, Jebusites, the Hibites, all the all different sites and stuff like that. And it just never occurred. It never happened. Because what it is, is yeah. it's, there are exceptions to the rule. The general rule is, yeah, God's power will stand. God will accomplish his things. But we do find exceptions to it. And this, it's, it's, not, it's not the general rule that's of interest to us in this debate. It's the exceptions. The times that his word does fail. Where God says, I will do this without fail. Eli, your sons will stand before me forever. And then he reverses course and it doesn't happen. Right? Yeah, it's probably important to, to, to point out that it's more informative to know who God is based off of 
the historical record rather than statements. A statement is, is very powerful to hear, but you know, you should really judge who God is and his character through how he interacts with people in history. And and what he's done in history is that he will hold to his word unless you are corrupt, and then he will change it. That's what he does. Or or in some cases it's because uh the enemy has chariots. Well, <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I mean it's, it's tough. We have that. Answer. <laughs> Chariots are pretty powerful. <laughs> Holy Scripture, you agree with that? Yes. So how can you say there's a he can change his mind about coming back if you say that his word, which I agree with you, I think you're on point here, his word that he has given us in this Bible, we can trust in our. So that's why when in I my debate on open theism, the one I just did recently, one thing I set up very clearly was how language functions where you're going to have there's very definitive statements about very specific things but there's exceptions or they are just generalities and that type of language is used also about human beings right so it's it's a huge mistake to take these general statements and treat them like metaphysical rules rather than what they are rules of thumb and so like you'll you'll find verses in Isaiah that says who has been God's counselor this is a rhetorical question the rhetorical answer is no one's been his counselor but that doesn't mean that the author of that text didn't believe that that Abraham had a conversation with God about the number of people that would be collateral damage in the Sodom and Gomorrah incident that's that's not what he has in mind when he's talking about this when Paul says all have sinned uh, he's he's not thinking about Jesus. He's not probably including people like Job and the other prophets in his his general blanket statement. All have sinned. There are exceptions to the rule. David writes his face animations are condescending. Uh, yeah, Michael Holloway. He's he is using body language. I'd say effectively for the yeah. audience. Yeah, he's he's acting as though he's teaching a very confused person. So that's that's when Zachary needs to actually take some initiative and tear Michael down from his high horse so that his condescending look actually looks like someone who is condescending rather than someone who is on a higher plane condescending. Someone someone who's just like on a equal or lower status trying to be condes condescending. Our hearts. How can you tell me that the words that Jesus Christ has already spoken can change? Uh, so I have faith that if God changes his mind, uh, he will change his mind in a way that is good and just and holy. So I don't think he's going to change his mind randomly, haphazardly. Like uh, I said, I was going to uh, be just, but I'm no longer going to be just. I think he will only change his mind uh, in terms of uh, I was I was going to accomplish my purpose this way. Now I'm going to accomplish my purpose a different way. Okay, all right. So, so John chapter number thirteen, Jesus says uh, concerning foretelling uh, Judas betraying him. He says, "I'm telling you, I'm telling you this before it happens." that when it happens, 
you may know that I am he. Why is it that Jesus Christ uses a future contingency, something that had not taken place yet, as evidence to his disciples that he, in fact, is the Christ? Why would he use a future contingency if it has the potential of changing? Okay, uh, so... Uh, I think he could see Judas's heart, and I think he chose Judas based on being able to see Judas's heart, and because he has that present knowledge of what is in Judas's heart, he's able that is able to inform his prediction of the future. How did David know it in Psalms? Because Jesus actually quoted the psalms chapter number 41 written 700 years before okay so here's where um zachary <laughs> might not know or be familiar with his father's own work because bob enyart was very familiar with how texts are used in the old testament the prophecies it, it, the answer to that is let's go read the text let's go read david there's there's nothing about a prophecy there's nothing about yeah. anything like that it's it, you're just making things up it's just not there that when the when the new testament is talking about fulfilled fulfilled text it's not talking about nostradamus crystal ball prophecies of the future it's just not present and yeah. um Zachary, he's probably, he probably doesn't know right I, I don't think he knows i don't think no. he's familiar with his own father's work on the subject uh, it's I'm not, I'm not trying to be mean it's just it's it's impossible to impart all your knowledge to your kids it's just yeah, they won't sit still, you know. Oh yeah, <laughs> it's those kids' fault. It, it is. <laughs> Be like rain. Go do some push-ups. You're falling asleep here. Do okay. We're going for one push-up. Come on, <laughs> one. Just you can't just stand. We need you awake for this, daughter. Or Christ, how would David had known that the one who ate his bread? will lift up his heel against Christ. Uh, so I believe that God knew that when uh, Jesus came to the earth, he would pick uh, at least one of his disciples. Uh, so this is a weird interaction here. It's like, and you're just going off on the, like this weird speculation Mm -hmm. that's like choppy it's like well i believe this and this yeah. and this so like either just say well the bible's silent on that matter this is a debate about the bible and so it could happen all sorts of ways i could give you like one of a thousand different possibilities but uh, uh you know it's, yeah. it's just not relevant to the debate but but instead the optics are uh like he's sort of just straining to come up with an answer and like i think people just by the tone of voice are not going to be convinced because they're going to feel like it's being made up on the spot. Right. It's like, what what would lead someone to the conclusion that God has exhaustive, future, innate, unfalsifiable... Yeah. It's like uh, there's a million ways you could know that he's the one who's going to do it. There's a million ways. This is not a proof of exhaustive foreknowledge. Yeah, there, there's nothing in that to suggest Michael Holloway's view of God's foreknowledge. Like there's nothing that recommends it to. In fact, in Mark 13, 32, there's part, aspects of the future that says that Jesus explicitly doesn't know. It's it's not omniscience. Whatever you're yeah. appealing to, 
that is the one thing we could exclude. <laughs> that that might be a good answer. We should say that's when God is lisping. He actually doesn't know, but he's just lisping. <laughs> I say, Michael Holloway, your view is the one explanation yeah. that we can exclude based yes. on what we based know. Based on the text. Based, based on the on text. The text. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> that would actually be really funny. Uh, by looking for a person specifically whose heart was uh, uh, evil uh. and against God. And since God knew that, uh, he was able to inspire David to write a, the psalm that way, uh, to foreshadow that. So God said that we'll find somebody. There, there has to be somebody with an evil heart. We'll make sure we pick one of them. How could God know for sure, even if the heart was evil, that he would actually betray Jesus to the leaders of Jerusalem. He and Bob Anyart would say, uh, he said it in multiple debates. Like if if Judas didn't betray, there'd be no Old Testament prophecy that you could point to of yeah. a betrayal. It just doesn't exist. And, and probably everything about this would not happen. Like it wouldn't ever be mentioned in the first place. Yeah, something yeah. else would be happened. That's another yeah. Bob Edyer said that it doesn't. It probably the story probably wouldn't be included. I, I yeah. could have could have been in his debate with uh, uh, talk show, California talk show host. Oh man, uh, I'll have to I'll have to grab the guy's name, but it's probably from that. So Zachary probably should consume more of his dad's content. All children out here listening. <laughs> <laughs> more of your father's <laughs> content could have he could have tried to kill G. he could have as judas did only he could have been evil and continued to steal money out of the treasury without betraying jesus how could god know without a shadow of a doubt that christ would be wounded for our transgressions and bruised for our iniquities if these are future contingencies that human beings have not yet decided to do, how could he know for sure? Uh, uh, so uh, which question should I do first of Judas uh, selling out Jesus or the, uh... I, I don't like that. Which question should I do first? Right. Um, it's, it's very like, just pick one. It's like, well, you asked multiple questions, so I'm just yeah. going to go ahead and do whatever I want here. Yeah. Something like that. A bruised for our iniquities part. Well, 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 well let's start with Judas because the, uh, the bruised is what it led to. So start. condescending laugh. It's like, okay, well, we did both of them. Yeah, you're you're not going to have an answer for either. Is that that's the tone? Yeah. Start with Judas. Uh, so uh, there's a couple of possibilities. Possibility one is, uh, God just chose somebody who. He could tell that this person, his motivation is he wants money, uh, so he's going to sell Jesus out. Or he could uh, he could have influenced Judas uh, by like affecting his mind and uh, uh, like if Judas was thinking about uh, like murdering Jesus, uh, God could uh, interfere. So, yeah, this is a debate about the Bible. And so you, you could actually just, just, uh, it, you, 
one strategy is just to affirm whatever determinism it takes to get you back on subject. To say, yeah, God could have uh, overridden his free will and forced him to do that. And that's one of a million different explanations. It doesn't matter. It's not relevant. This being yeah. a fact of the text does not lead anyone to your conclusions. Yeah. That's all you got to do. That's yeah. the simplest thing to do because it, 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 it kind of invalidates this whole question. It, it, he doesn't sit back there watching you squirm. He, he's the one who has to react. To say all it all it takes for open theism to be true is God not knowing one thing about the future, God changing his mind once, God being sequential, all those things. And nothing about this verse invalidates anything like that. In his thought processes and uh, steer him towards just uh, selling Jesus out. So God could have steered a person to sin. Is that what I'm hearing, Zachary? Well, in, in that said example, he could have I, steered. Yeah, he does it all the time in the Bible. He whistles for <laughs> the Assyrians uh, to come. Uh, raise, raise his heart. Yeah, he, he hardens Pharaoh's heart. So he does it all the time. Yeah, but it's an emotional thing, right? It's like, uh, oh man, wouldn't that be so terrible if uh, God enticed someone to do a sin? Like, remember uh, when David numbered the people at God's enticement? But, but also, like, you, you think he pre-programmed everything from the beginning of all time? So, like, he's responsible for everything in, in your view. So, like, is this better? <laughs> yeah. Well, uh, the. The good thing to do is not play into whatever frame that they're setting up to the debate. Reframe the debate. If if you set your frame, if you set your expertise and uh, your interest as the Bible, and then refocus that with all these emotional questions, that will play it a lot better for you in the debate uh, than all of this uh, speculative question answering. In Go that ahead. example I gave, Judas was already sinning because he was uh, going to uh, in this. Yeah, we'll skip forward a little bit, but it, it's it's uh, it's kind of like a weird answer. It's like, how does he know Judas is going to do this? And he's and he starts going, well, it could be that he already started sinning. And so he kind of knew his character. And and then uh, where Michael Holloway, his question is. How was this known exactly that this will definitely take place? Mm -hmm. Zachary's buying into that framing. He should say, no, uh, if this did not happen, if Judas didn't exist, none of the Old Testament would be invalidated. A lot of these stories wouldn't make the Bible. And uh, you, you would go on reading the yeah. Bible as normal. They, they wouldn't make the New Testament. They'd still be in the Old Testament. Like, like these things were there in the first place. And they were just picking, like the way it worked is they just found things that are similar in the Old Testament that yeah. are already there. So you, you would just read it and move on. Yeah, it's like you, you can't actually go back to the Old Testament and then predict what the New Testament's going to pull out for proof <laughs> texting. For a prophecy, yeah. <laughs> it, yeah. It's just that possible. All right, so we'll skip forward. We'll see if there's any good questions and answers if he throws any on the screen. Maybe we could grab a couple. Here is Will Duffy. Sir. All right. Yeah, Will Duffy is uh, being a rich man. Gives him five American dollars. That's a lot of money. Uh -huh. So the question is, did God keep his promise to destroy Nineveh in 40 days? If you claim it was not a promise, how do you determine when God is making a promise? 
So this is this is a fairly directed yeah. question. It's pretty straightforward, and it's a focused rather than the open-ended questions. You always want focused questions. Great question. I was hoping that question came up in the discussion, but great question. Rem okay, so watch how he reframes it. He's like, great question. This is th something I'm looking forward to answering and talking about. Him showing excitement and confidence does wonders for the audience thinking that he has this all figured out and an answer. Mm -hmm. So Zachary Enyart is now being tasked, whether he knows it or not, to pick apart Michael's. Zachary is going second on all these questions. So like, like the questions asked to someone and then the other person has a rebuttal time. Zachary's task is to dismantle Michael's answer. Remember what Jeremiah 18 says. It says at any time, right? And let me just go here real quickly. And Jeremiah chapter number 18, starting at verse number seven. I'm sorry. I'm going to get here real quick. Okay. Notice God says at any time that I speak concerning a nation or concerning a kingdom to pluck up, to pull down and to destroy it. If that nation against whom I have spoken turns from his evil, mm -hmm. I will relent of the disaster that I thought to bring upon it. It's not that God is breaking his promise. God relenting from the disaster he intended to do to Nineveh is not a change right. in his yeah. character, his person, his being. Actually, had he gone on to destroy Nineveh after they repented, that would be a totally different God than the God communicated in Scripture. <laughs> Remember, when it comes to judgment promises. Basically, God could change his mind uh, whenever I say he can, uh, but well, uh, he also can't change his mind whenever I say God can't change his mind. Yeah, because he, he's using the language that he actually intended to do it. So he, he doesn't know what he's saying. Yeah, it's it's just talking nonsense. God's he's going to destroy the wicked. That is a promise that is going to come to pass. But what happened? Nineveh changed. Nineveh fasted, put the animals on the fast with him. Nineveh had a change of heart. So they fell now. This is where Zachary could have just butchered him. It's like, I'm glad you're open theist now that God now <laughs> changes due to changing circumstances. Well, he we all agree. Talk, right? I, he gets to answer second, like all the questions uh, you answer. Okay. And it's like, then you sit point out, uh, you're a hypocrite, Michael. You, you try to take me to for task for saying all these things must come true. And then here you say that God can change his mind with changing circumstances. That's my position. That's open yeah, theism. Yeah, that's it what it the only counts is. for nations. That That's the point. It only works if he's talking about a nation, not yeah. a person. And then you point out the text <laughs> specifically says that God will not do what God thought to do, and God will not do what God said he was going to do. And say you said he intended to do it. You said he intends to do yeah. it. <laughs> yeah, it's like, Michael, you're talking like an open theist because you're finally yeah. caring about what the Bible says. Uh, I'm glad you're now on board with open theism. On the, the side of God's attributes of his mercy, which endures forever, which is also an unchangeable attribute. So again, this was a prophecy against Nineveh for her evil works. When Nineveh repented, changes, no longer fit that qualification. And yeah, it, this, this is the weird claim. And, and I do got that clip from Sonic where he's like, I didn't expect that. But I was expecting not to expect something, so that doesn't actually count. <laughs> like, 
Like God changed his mind, but over here, this verse says that God will change his mind in these circumstances. So it wasn't an actual change of mind. It's like, it, it says he's changed his mind. God saying that he's going to change his mind in the future does not mean that he doesn't change his mind. It means that he does change his mind. He's telling us when he changes his mind, that's a change of mind. He still does it. And therefore, God relented of the evil. He didn't change in character because his character has always been from eternity past to eternity future to forgive them that repent, to have mercy upon those. A broken and a contrite heart, God shall not despise. All right. All right. We'll see what uh, Zach says. Any thoughts? Yeah. This is his chance to slaughter them. Yeah. Uh, so Jeremiah 18, 7 through 10 is super interesting how it's a didactic text that explains in what situation God will repent. And, Good so far. And uh, somehow uh, we get from that uh, because the Bible is uh, giving us the exact circumstances in which God will repent. Somehow that means that God is not actually repenting. <laughs> yeah uh, that's the point yeah. uh, and i do agree it's that uh, this story in nineveh does fall under that jeremiah 18 7 through 10 uh uh category uh Jer jeremiah is talking about circumstances like this in the book of jonah uh, uh saying it's exactly in those circumstances where i will repent and then you read in jonah that uh god did not destroy this yeah, Judge Rightly says didactic sounds like a Calvinist. Yeah, that this is their false frame. They'll say there's certain texts that are texts that are didactic, and they'll grab texts randomly out of narratives. And so yeah. Samuel will be interacting with Saul, saying God's not a man that he should change his mind. Um, and they'll they'll pull it out of a narrative and they'll say this is a didactic text, and, and but your text is a narrative text where the exact same. The exact same context it said the narrator says that god changes his mind and then god says that he changed his mind it's like okay this random one character yeah. giving a one-off <laughs> line i guess trumps all of that didactic. because this yeah. this this gets a special category of didactic or something like that i, I think the the main issue that uh zachary has is he's not making it into a kill shot he's he's saying hey yeah i agree it is a uh it's a it's a change that's what and this is an example but he's not saying things like you just agreed with me that you're an open ts2 he's not he's not doing that kind of like yeah uh, he, he's not hammering at home you contradicted yeah. everything you've said in this debate so far. yeah you, yeah, you hammered me for 20 minutes about how certain things must happen yeah exactly. here we have in Nineveh something that must happen that failed to happen and then you turn to Jeremiah 18. But you don't let me turn to Jeremiah 18 to say that Judas didn't have to happen. That yeah. the revelations doesn't have to happen. You don't allow me the same out because you don't have any standards. You don't care about being consistent. And I you mean, just have talking points. He made that big point early on. He's like, look, I can't trust that Jesus is coming back. Because you're saying that if, if there's no more believers to come back to, he won't come back. And, and and you're, look, look, this is what the text says. He will change his prophecy based on whether or not people are faithful or not. Yeah, he said like, his words coming back to avoid. He said he'd do it. It doesn't happen. Yeah. That was your big thing, Michael Holloway. You hypocrite. You yeah. hypocrite. It's you'll you'll say whatever you want in the moment that sounds good with no internal consistency. 
yeah. the city. Uh, therefore, I think it's reasonable to say God repented of that disaster that he said he would bring upon them. All right, we'll cut off there. We're about at two hours, but uh, some concluding thoughts. I thought this debate would be interesting to go over because um, it gives us some instructional things about just the logistics of debates, what you're looking for, what you're looking to do, what the purpose is, how to cross-exam, how to diffuse situations, how to read into the intentions of your interlocutors, how to uh, frame yourself and frame the debate and avoid rambling answers and questions, things like that. How to focus. Helpful. So I, th I think Zachary lost this debate. And so I think in content, Zachary lost this debate as well as stylistically. Um, because just the answers that he was given were not scripturally based it wasn't focusing to the debate it wasn't hard-hitting on the scripture whereas michael holloway kept looking towards the text in the, at least the cross-examination and trying to focus on that yeah i think michael was following a lot of the techniques we suggested and and it worked well for him and he he left feeling like one that he had bit he was the one who was confident with all the answers but also that he was helping helping Zach out, teaching him, you know, presenting himself like the good guy who's just here to, to, to clarify things. Yeah. Zachary, you're young. You can learn from me. Just listen to what I'm saying. Zachary's like, okay, all right, yeah. next, let's ask you about this. Yeah. Okay. Next. So the stylistically the debate was a loss in content, probably also a loss, but uh, there, there are things to learn. Uh, yep. Things to learn about framing. Frame and the debate. Learning experiences are good. Stick with your frame. Refocus mm -hmm. to your frame. Uh, once you frame the debate, you tell the audience what to expect. When those things start occurring within the debate, you always have to reference your frame. I told you he was going to do this, and now he just did that. Remember when I talked about how language is used and how they don't uh, use it consistently? This is an example because look at this. Frame the debate, set things up, and as those things fulfill, recall back to your prior framing. Uh, reframing the debate is also good for avoiding these long rambling questions and answers, which are rhetorical kill shots, like like emotional, like, oh, how did how did God know that Judas was gonna do this? It's like, okay, I'll just assume that God, he did know that Judas is going to do this and do it infallibly. That doesn't equal exhaustive divine foreknowledge of all events. We'll just grant it for argument's sake. It doesn't lead to your conclusion. And, and Michael Holloway, he, he'll be left without any ammunition because then he can't uh, do this emotional thing, these emotional like, oh, you don't believe this? That's so terrible. So granting points for the sake of furthering the debate is good to do when the person doesn't actually want to debate whatever you're debating. So, uh, other thoughts? Uh, I mean, it seems like it it was worth having this debate, I guess. Um, probably Zachary should be having these conversations in private a lot first. So he's, he's like, should, it's quick on the draw, right? He should go on Clubhouse. He should go on Discord. 
and get into a hostile audience <laughs> and, and learn what these people say, what they believe and yeah. how they respond to arguments and then how to focus things. You deal with people all the time in these debate chat rooms who don't want to answer very basic questions. It gets very grating and you'll, you'll quickly learn how to focus your questions to something meaningful that you could get an actual dialogue about. Uh, Judge Riley says theology online. It could work. Yeah. Debate sites, chat sites, uh, refine your arguments. Zachary Anyart doesn't seem to have access to a lot of information that could have helped him out within this debate. I don't it, it, Does he follow his own dad's work? I don't know. Yeah. It could just be that he's, he wasn't quick because he hadn't had this conversation before maybe he actually knows like it seems like he knows a lot of things but he just he, do, he doesn't seem like he's talked to opposition a lot at all like yeah like, like if he like he seems like he's very well read and that he, he can understand exactly what issues need to be brought up he just doesn't know how to how to actually turn the knife yeah, Roddy makes a, a good uh, suggestion. Bring him here and have practice debates. And <laughs> I could be the Calvinist. Yeah. I could do the Michael Holloway obfuscation and uh, lecturing and, and talking down. Yeah, that'd be good. I, I definitely could do that. But so overall, I thought it was an interesting object lesson in just uh, communication and presentation. It doesn't help that it's kind of washed out there with, with the lighting. I don't know if that was doing any favors there. Marlon seems to have it down for his uh, just his technical presentation. But that's what yeah. you'd expect for wow. some someone like him. I mean he's got he's got the full on professional mic and everything. Yeah, and he's got his little solas in the background, like, oh I'm a Calvinist. <laughs> is I got, is that what he does? Uh, yeah, Marlon's a Calvinist. And so Michael's a Quasi Calvinist. Is he just a debate moderator, or is he actually? Yeah, that's his. That's his big thing. Is he runs all these debates, and um, sometimes if he gets real animated, he'll kind of like jump in on one side a little bit. Then, then he'll be like, "Oh no, I'm supposed to be a moderator." Then he'll like back (laughs) off. (laughs) That's funny. But he's not a bad guy, so it's fine. But anyways, well, I thank you for coming on and talking through this with me. I'll let you go. I see you got company, maybe, perhaps. Uh, perhaps perhaps uh, that's j- j- maybe i maybe i'm just making things up yeah <laughs> all right if anyone has any questions or comments put that down below or start a thread on the god is open facebook page thank you for watching